This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, drug use, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. When Suzanne Struthers' 15-year-old brother called to tell her nobody was answering the door at their mother and stepfather's house, she didn't believe him at first. It was after 9 p.m., and they weren't the type to go out carousing late at night, but he insisted she come over. Suzanne told herself it was probably nothing, one of his jokes that she didn't understand. But she couldn't shake her rattled nerves. She took her boyfriend, Joe, to go investigate. When Suzanne arrived at her parents' house, she retrieved the spare key and unlocked the back door. Joe suggested that she wait in the kitchen while he checked the living room. As she waited, Suzanne looked around and spotted a pile of watermelon rinds in the sink. The sight of the mess in her mother's normally neat kitchen gave Suzanne a chill. A moment later, Joe hurried back into the kitchen. Seeing his face, Suzanne's worry turned to panic. He wouldn't tell her what he saw in the living room, only that they had to leave, right now. As Joe guided her to the back door, Suzanne glanced at the refrigerator, startled. Scrawled on the door, in red paint, was a strange message. Helter Skelter. and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, What manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, 
we explored Charles Manson's troubled childhood in and out of juvenile facilities. As an adult, he spent another 10 years in prison. But despite his criminal tendencies, Charles had an amazing talent for manipulating people. When he was released from prison in 1967, Charles used this power of manipulation to attract a following of lost, vulnerable people who were desperate for love and guidance. He called his group of two dozen disciples, the family. Under Charles's guidance, they spent their days squatting at Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley, taking drugs, participating in group sex, and listening to Charles lecture about a coming race war, which he called Helter Skelter. But by July of 1969, Charles's thoughts and actions were turning increasingly violent. After a dispute with a drug dealer named Lotsapapa, Charles went to Lotsapapa's apartment, shot him, and left him for dead. But this shooting was only the start of the brutality Charles perpetuated that summer. In this episode, we'll talk about how Charles directed his followers to kill for him, how the group began to splinter in the aftermath of the violence, and how the family was finally brought to justice. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event, July 22nd through August 9th. All your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored Charles Manson's troubled childhood in and out of juvenile facilities. As an adult, he spent another 10 years in prison. But despite his criminal tendencies, Charles had an amazing talent for manipulating people. When he was released from prison in 1967, Charles used his power of manipulation to attract a following of lost, vulnerable people who were desperate for love and guidance. He called his group of two dozen disciples the family. Under Charles's guidance, they spent their days squatting at Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley, taking drugs, participating in group sex, and listening to Charles lecture about a coming race war, which he called Helter Skelter. But by July of 1969, Charles's thoughts and actions were turning increasingly violent. After a dispute with a drug dealer named Lotsapapa, Charles went to Lotsapapa's apartment, shot him, and left him for dead. But this shooting was only the start of the brutality Charles perpetuated that summer. In this episode, we'll talk about how Charles directed his followers to kill for him 
how the group began to splinter in the aftermath of the violence, and how the family was finally brought to justice. After Charles gunned down Lots of Papa in July of 1969, he bragged to his followers about the shooting. But he wrongly believed Lots of Papa was affiliated with the Black Panthers and worried that the Panthers might come after the family in revenge. Charles became fixated on his plan to flee to Death Valley and wait out helter-skelter in isolated safety. There, Charles said, they would hide in a pit until the world returned to order. But before they could make their trip to the desert, the family needed to raise some funds. Charles thought one potential source of income might be 34-year-old music teacher and drug dealer, Gary Henman. Henman was friendly with the family, sometimes letting them crash at his house. But Charles wasn't interested in the man's friendship. With Henman, as with all of Charles's relationships, Charles only cared about how he could use the other person to benefit himself. This was also how Charles felt about 21-year-old musician Bobby Beausoleil. Bobby wasn't an official member of the family, but he hung out at the ranch frequently, listened to Charles's lectures about helter-skelter, and was romantically involved with some of the family women. In July of 1969, Charles learned that the two men were in the midst of an argument. Bobby Beausoleil had purchased a thousand tabs of mescaline from Gary Hinman, but he then claimed that the drugs were tainted. Bobby wanted his money back. Charles figured that as long as Bobby was asking for a refund, he should demand some extra cash to help fund the family's cause. In exchange, Charles sent over a few family members to Henman's house to put pressure on him. Charles knew that Henman was particularly attracted to Manson family member Ella Jo Bailey, so he suggested she go along to help persuade Henman. But Ella Jo asked to be excused from duty. Perhaps she guessed that the visit might become violent. She later said that she witnessed the family members arguing over which guns and weapons they would bring to Henman's apartment. Instead, Charles sent family members Bruce Davis, Susan Atkins, and Mary Bruner to act as enforcers. They held the drug dealer up at gunpoint, while the spurned Bobby Beausoleil beat him senseless. Eventually, Henman agreed to sign over the pink slips to his two vehicles as payment. But when Bobby called Charles to let him know, he wasn't satisfied. He was sure Henman must have money stashed away. For the next two days, Bobby, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins held Gary Hinman hostage in his home. They continued to make demands for money while Bobby relentlessly beat him. When Hinman told them he'd go to the police, Bobby was spooked. He might go to prison for what he'd done. He called Charles, who said, you know what to do. Bobby took that as a command to silence Hinman by killing him. Before I continue with Bobby's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. The American Psychological Association has expressed skepticism that people can be brainwashed into acting violently, but some psychologists point to countless examples of people falling under a violent cult influence and going on to do the unthinkable. Licensed mental health counselor Stephen Hassan 
use the rise of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups as modern examples of how people can be indoctrinated into committing murder. These extremist groups have radicalized individuals through isolation, limiting access to outside information, and instilling an us-versus-them mentality. Charles Manson uses same tactics. Family members looked to Charles as their only source of wisdom and guidance. Some even thought he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Charles exploited their trust to make them believe they had to take a stand against the rich and powerful pigs of the outside world. The family wasn't just willing to kill for their god, Charles. They were proud to do it. So when Charles gave the word, Bobby readily obeyed. He stabbed Henman, then dipped his hand in the dying man's blood to draw on the wall. He wrote, political piggy, and then painted a paw print. Charles had instructed Bobby to leave evidence incriminating the Black Panthers. He hoped Henman's death would heighten racial tensions and help kick off Helter Skelter. Then the group left, taking Henman's cars with them. Back at Spawn Ranch, Susan Atkins boasted to the other women about the murder, but not all the family members were impressed. Ella Jo Bailey felt sick to her stomach. She couldn't believe that the people she saw every day, people she loved, could casually admit to murder. She had heard about Charlie's shooting at Black Panther a few weeks before, but that hadn't hit her the same way. She figured it was just Charlie protecting the family. Hearing about Henman's death was different. She knew Henman. She had been invited into his home. Ella Jo wondered what might have happened if she hadn't refused to go back. Perhaps she could have done something to help Henman. Now it was too late and she felt paralyzed with guilt. Ella Jo reflected on her time with the family. Charlie had been the center of her life for nearly two years. She had once thought she'd be happy to follow Charlie's lead for the rest of her life, but now she admitted that she felt differently. Perhaps it had started when Bill Vance joined the group. Bill was special, and at some point after he arrived, Ella Jo had begun to think of him as her boyfriend. But Charlie discouraged the family from forming attachments. He told them that everyone belonged to everyone else. Falling in love with Bill was Ella Jo's first act of disobedience against Charlie. Now, in the wake of Henman's death, Ella Jo began to steel herself up for another, larger rebellion. As soon as she could, she would find Bill Vance. Then, they would flee Spawn Ranch together. On July 28, 1969, Ella Jo Bailey and Bill Vance escaped the family for good. Three days later, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department discovered Gary Henman's body. Afraid the police would connect him to the death, Bobby Beausoleil decided to flee to San Francisco, driving the car he had stolen from Henman. But the car broke down midway there. When Highway Patrol stopped to help, they realized that an all-points bulletin had been issued for the stolen car. 
The officers discovered the knife Bobby had used to stab Hinman stashed in the car as well. Later, they matched his fingerprints to a thumbprint left in Gary Henman's house. The officers arrested Bobby, and he was charged with murder. When Charles heard about the arrest, he was worried Bobby might confess to everything, implicating the family in the murder. But he was also upset that Henman's murder hadn't made more of an impact. He had hoped to spark a media frenzy that would initiate the coming race war. So as the family discussed how to deal with Bobby's arrest, Charles began to work out a new plan. He wanted to stage an even more brutal murder, one so shocking it would make headlines around the country. Charles was sure that such an event would be enough to trigger Helter Skelter, and as a bonus, it might help Bobby Beausoleil. The family thought if more murders were committed while Bobby was in custody, it would prove that the police had arrested the wrong man and he would be let go. On the night of August 8, 1969, Charles took family member Tex Watson aside and told him what needed to be done. A year earlier, when Charles was cozying up to every music industry contact that would tolerate him, he had pursued a relationship with music producer Terry Melcher. At the time, Melcher lived in a secluded house on Cielo Drive. Even though Melcher had moved out of the house some months before, Charles reasoned that whoever lived there now must also be rich and famous. Anyone who lived in a place like that must be the kind of high-profile person whose death would make national news. According to Charles's plan, Tex and a few of the family women would go to Cielo Drive, break into the house, and murder them. In his research, Stephen Hassan stated that in the most destructive cults, psychological influence seeks to disrupt an individual's identity, personal behavior, thoughts, emotions, and reconstruct it in the image of the leader. Tex Watson would later say that he accepted Charles's plan without an argument because Manson's law was greater than his own conscience. Charles recruited more followers to help Tex, 21-year-old Susan Atkins, 21-year-old Pat Krenwinkel, and 20-year-old Linda Kasabian. He instructed them to obey any command Tex gave, but didn't tell them the goal of the mission. As they got into the car, Charles called out, do something witchy. It was a code to replicate Gary Hinman's murder and the political piggy message Bobby had scrawled on the wall. Just after midnight on August 9, 1969, the family arrived at the house on Cielo Drive. Tex instructed the women to climb over the fence. Once they were on the grounds, Tex told them the plan. Kill anyone they found inside. Coming up, we'll talk about the infamous murder spree of August 9th and 10th, 1969. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 
Just after midnight on August 9, 1969, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Pat Krenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian drove through Benedict Canyon until they reached the house at 10050 Cielo Drive. Once they got there, Tex gave the women the order he had received from Charles Manson. They were to break in and kill everyone inside. After Melcher moved out, 35-year-old director Roman Polanski and his wife, 26-year-old actress Sharon Tate, rented the house. That night, Polanski was not home. He was filming a movie in Europe. But a pregnant Tate, just two weeks away from her due date, had stayed behind in Los Angeles. Another couple also resided in the house, a longtime friend of Polanski's, 32-year-old Wojtek Frykowski, and his girlfriend, 25-year-old Abigail Folger. The pair had moved in to keep Sharon company before the birth. On that August night, Sharon had another visitor, her close friend and hairstylist, 35-year-old Jay Sebring. In addition to the main house, the property also had a smaller guest cottage. The property caretaker, 19-year-old William Gerritsen, lived in the cottage. That night, he had a friend over, 18-year-old student, Steve Parent. Parent was just leaving the property around 12.15 a.m. on August 9th. When the family members heard Steve Parent's car coming toward them down the driveway, they hid in some bushes. But as the car stopped at the front gate, Tex emerged holding his gun. The teenager implored, please, please don't hurt me. I'm your friend. I won't tell. Tex ignored him. He sliced Parent's arm with a knife and then shot him four times. Steve Parent slumped over in the front seat, dead. The group paused to see if the gunfire had alerted the residents of the home, but the surrounding canyons had muffled the sound. Tex and the women continued on to the main house. Tex found an open window leading into the front hall. After slicing open the screen, he told Linda to stay and keep lookout while the rest went inside. In the living room, Tex, Susan, and Pat found Wojtek Frykowski asleep on the couch. Frykowski woke up and asked them what they wanted. Tex replied, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Then, he kicked Frykowski in the head, rendering him barely conscious. Tex told the women to check the rest of the house. They found Abigail Folger, Sharon Tate, and JC bring in the bedrooms. Brandishing their knives, they ordered everyone to the living room. Once there, Tex tied up the men, Jay and the still-dazed Frykowski. Sharon Tate started to cry. Jay shouted, Can't you see she's pregnant? As soon as Jay spoke, Tex shot him in the abdomen. Tex demanded all the money the hostages had. Folger revealed that she had about $70 in her purse, about $500 today. Tate explained that she didn't have any money in the house, but she could get some. Knowing that Charles would be upset if they returned to Spawn Ranch without much cash, Tex became angry. J.C. Bring groaned and writhed on the floor from his gunshot wound. Tex whirled on him and stabbed him until he died. When Tate and Folger screamed in horror, 
Wojtek Frykowski awoke from his stupor and struggled to untie his own hands. Susan Atkins leapt at him and stabbed his legs. Tex turned the gun on him and began to shoot, but he somehow managed to break free and limped outside. Tex quickly caught up with him. Frykowski died with two bullet wounds and 51 stab wounds. Linda Kasabian was still outside keeping lookout. When they had set out that evening, she thought they were going on another creepy crawling mission, not a murder spree. As soon as she saw Tex shoot Steve Parent, she had entered a state of shock. Now she made an attempt to end the gory scene. She shouted, please make it stop. People are coming. But nobody was coming and Tex did not stop. Linda gave up. She decided to hop the fence, get away from the property and wait by their car. As Frykowski died on the front lawn, Abigail Folger tried to break away. She also tried to escape across the yard, but Pat Krenwinkle caught up with her and stabbed her. When Tex trotted over, he pointed Pat towards the guest cottage and told her to look inside and kill anyone there. Pat seemed shaken after stabbing Folger, and she only pretended to check the guest cottage, telling Tex that the house was empty. If the caretaker, William Gerritsen, was awake, he didn't give any sign to reveal himself. Tex, meanwhile, continued stabbing Abigail Folger. Later, he claimed she told him as she died, I give up. You've got me. Finally, the murderers turned to pregnant Sharon Tate. Tate begged them to spare her. She pleaded with them to kidnap her and keep her alive just long enough to deliver her baby. The family ignored her. Susan Atkins held the sobbing woman while Tex stabbed her 16 times. When she was dead, Susan dipped a towel in her blood and wrote the word pig on the front door. With their mission accomplished, the group left the property. Tex, Susan, and Pat joined Linda at the car and drove away. When they got back to the ranch, Charles was eager to hear about the crime. In fact, he wanted to see it for himself to make sure it was gruesome enough to attract media attention. He drove back to the house himself that night and made small adjustments, wanting to make the crime scene as bizarre and shocking as possible. He placed a towel over J.C. Bring's head. He draped an American flag over Sharon Tate's body. He moved a pair of glasses to the living room. When he was finished, he drove back to Spawn Ranch and went to bed. The next morning around 8 a.m., a housekeeper discovered the bodies inside the house on Cielo Drive. Her screams alerted neighbors who called the police. Police questioned the caretaker, William Gerritsen. He claimed that he had been asleep all night. The police didn't believe him and arrested Gerritsen. Police also found a number of recreational drugs in the house, MDMA, hashish, and marijuana. Perhaps the murders were the result of a drug deal gone bad. Back at Spawn Ranch, Susan, Tex, and Pat watched the news and basked in the attention their crimes had received. But Charles wasn't satisfied. None of the reports blamed the deaths on the Black Panthers, 
nor did they link the deaths to Gary Henman's murder. The Tate murders wouldn't clear Bobby Beausoleil's name, nor would they begin Helter Skelter. So Charles decided that more people had to die. This time, he wouldn't simply issue orders from the ranch. He intended to oversee the killings himself. Charles gathered the same group he'd sent to Cielo Drive, Tex, Susan, Pat, and Linda. No one had told Charles that Linda ran away during the previous night's murders, and she was too afraid to object when Charles selected her for a second journey. Charles also brought 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten and 18-year-old Clem Grogan. The group dressed in dark clothes and gathered their knives. Then they set out into the night. Charles directed them to a neighborhood in Los Feliz and told them to stop next door to a house the family had been to before for parties. But the friend had moved out the previous fall, and no one was sure why Charles picked this target. He and Tex got out of the car and entered through an unlocked back door. Inside, 44-year-old Lino LaBianca and his wife, 38-year-old Rosemary, were asleep. Lino and Rosemary were not rich celebrities. He ran a chain of grocery stores and she owned a dress shop. They were a well-liked, upper-middle-class couple. They had no connections to Manson or the family. When Charles and Tex went into the house, they found Lino asleep on the couch. When he awoke, Charles ordered Tex to tie the man's hands behind his back with some leather ropes he'd brought from the ranch. Charles went into the bedroom brought out Rosemary and sat her next to her husband. Then he retrieved Pat and Leslie from the car. He told Tex, make sure everybody does something. Before leaving, Charles stole Rosemary's wallet. Tex put a pillowcase over Lino LaBianca's head and wrapped a lamp cord around the man's neck and mouth. He instructed Pat and Leslie to take Rosemary into the bedroom and do the same thing to her. When they were out of sight, Tex stabbed Lino with a bayonet. From the bedroom, Rosemary screamed, What are you doing to my husband? She tried to run to Lino, but the lamp cords wrapped around her neck were still plugged into the wall. As Rosemary strained against the cords, Pat stabbed her with a kitchen knife. Then Tex came in to complete the job with his bayonet. When Rosemary was dead, Tex returned to the living room, stabbed Lino a few more times, and carved the word war into the man's stomach. Pat stuck an ivory-handled carving fork in his body. They went back to the bedroom, where Tex instructed Leslie to stab Rosemary's body, following Charlie's command that everyone participate. When they were finished, they used blood to write messages on the wall. In the living room, they wrote, Rise and Death to Pigs. In the kitchen, on the refrigerator door, Pat wrote, Helter Skelter, misspelled H-E-A-L-T-E-R. As Tex, Pat, and Leslie followed Charles's orders, Charles led the rest of the women, Linda, Clem, and Susan, to a Denny's restaurant in Silmar. He told Linda to leave Rosemary's wallet in the restaurant bathroom. He expected a black woman to find the wallet, 
steal the credit cards inside, and then be blamed for the LaBianca's murders. Then, Charles asked them whom else they might kill. Charles recalled Linda telling him about a Lebanese actor named Saladin Nader, whom she'd met while panhandling. Linda had gone back to the actor's home in Santa Monica to have sex. Charles asked if Linda remembered the building where the actor lived. Linda said yes, but when Charles handed her a knife and told her she was going to find Natter and slit his throat, Linda balked. The bloody events of the previous night had sickened her, and she did not want to be a part of more violence. She said, I'm not you, Charlie. Charles ignored her. He needed as many notorious deaths as possible to ignite Helter Skelter. He dropped the family members off in front of the actor's apartment and told Linda to lead Susan and Clem to the actor's door, where they would kill him. Then, Charles drove away, back to Spawn Ranch. Linda pretended to obey Charles, but she purposefully took Susan and Clem to the wrong unit. When a stranger answered the door, Linda backed away and told the family that she didn't remember where Natter lived. The group hitchhiked back to Spawn and nobody discussed what had happened. The following evening, Rosemary LaBianca's 15-year-old son, Frank, came home from staying at a friend's house. When his mother and stepfather didn't answer the door, Frank called his 21-year-old sister, Suzanne, and Suzanne's boyfriend, Joe Dorgan. The three entered the house where they found Rosemary and Lino LaBianca dead. They immediately called the police. When journalists got a hold of the story, they noticed the similarities between the crime scene at Cielo Drive and the LaBianca residence. Police, however, were skeptical. Lino LaBianca had some gambling debts and investigators thought he might have owed some money to members of the mafia. Although it seemed as if the family had gotten away with murder, Charles worried about Bobby Beausoleil, who was still being held for Gary Henman's death and who might confess and point the police to Charles at any moment. The week after the murders, Charles sent Linda Kasabian to visit Bobby in jail and give him a message to stay quiet. Linda happily took her assignment. Linda Kasabian's skin crawled as she thought about her naivete. She had left an unhappy marriage to join the family because she thought she might find a higher love with Charlie and his women. She felt disgusted by what she knew now. The family had nothing to do with love. They were just mindless robots controlled by a madman. Linda would give anything to undo the nights of August 9th and 10th, but her only option was to move forward. She had to get out. Only one thing was stopping Linda from deserting the family and never looking back. Her young daughter, Tanya, lived at Spawn Ranch too. Linda desperately tried to think of a way to take Tanya without raising Charlie's suspicions, but it was hopeless. She knew Charlie would never let them leave together. If she tried, Charlie might kill her, and then Tanya would be stuck with the family forever. Leaving Tanya was the hardest thing Linda had ever done, but she knew that it was the only way to get help. She had to do it, to save them both. With her decision made, 
Linda borrowed a car and made a show of leaving to visit Bobby at the Los Angeles County Jail. But instead of driving south, she went east. Her heart broke as the miles stretched between her and Tanya. But she willed herself to keep going. She had to reach her husband Bob in New Mexico. Then she would tell him everything. After Linda reunited with her husband, she told him about the murders, but she was too afraid to go to the police, worried the family might hurt her daughter. She was anxious, too, that the family might try to come after her. But by then, Charles was too busy to pursue an insubordinate family member. He was hard at work, preparing his followers for their move to the desert. Coming up, we'll talk about the fracturing of the family in Death Valley and how the group's breakdown helped investigators and prosecutors make their case against Charles Manson. Now, the conclusion of the story. In late August of 1969, Charles Manson decided it was time for Helter Skelter to begin. He ordered some of his most loyal followers to carry out a series of brutal murders on August 9th and 10th, killing seven people. Not long after the murders, Spawn Ranch was raided by police. It had nothing to do with the Tate or LaBianca murders. Police suspected the group was operating an auto theft ring on the property. They had been stealing dune buggies and motorcycles in preparation for their trek to the desert and had actually previously been raided for similar suspicions. Police took some of the family members into custody, but the charges were dropped within days for lack of evidence. Although they released the adult family members, they placed the family children, including Linda Kasabian's daughter, Tanya, into foster care. When Linda discovered this, she returned to LA County to regain custody over the girl, but she did not reveal anything about the murders. Back at the ranch, Charles remained anxious about the police's raid. He thought it might be a signal that someone was spilling family secrets. He blamed Donald Shorty Shea, an employee of the ranch owner. Shorty didn't care for the family's presence at the ranch, and he often advised his boss to kick them out. Given his animosity towards Charles, Shorty made a convenient scapegoat. Some night in late August, about two weeks after the Tate murders, Charles, Bruce Davis, and Clem Grogan took Shorty Shea out into the desert and killed him. With this done, Charles decided it was time to retreat to Death Valley National Park, hundreds of miles away from civilization to wait out the coming race wars. Charles's most ardent followers were thrilled that they were finally going to escape into the pit Charles had prophesied. They believed that once they were inside the pit, they would go through a metamorphosis and take whatever form they desired, but they had to locate the pit before this could happen. When they reached the desert, Charles ordered them to go on daily excursions in search of the hole that would lead them to the pit. Each night, when they returned from a day of searching, exhausted, they would gather around a fire, take hits of acid, and listen to Charles preaching about Helter Skelter and their new life. 
Sharon K. Farber, a counselor with a PhD in social work, said that cults prey upon the tendency of many to rely on magical thinking, which reinforces the tendency to endow the leader with omnipotent and magical powers. The member can readily come to believe that the leader can read his mind or hear conversations at a distance. Many of Charles's followers were desperate for Charles's predictions to come true. They had joined Charles in the first place to escape their empty lives, and now they wanted to escape from reality itself. But for the family members who were not quite sold on Charles's apocalyptic predictions, life in Death Valley was a difficult adjustment. There was no electricity or telephones. They were constantly running low on food and supplies, and the daily expeditions to find the pit were brutal in the desert heat. As morale dropped, Tex Watson grew frustrated. Every day the group failed to find the pit, Tex grew more doubtful of Charles's claims. Confused and depressed, he began to fervently wish that he could erase his life with the family. After a few weeks, he left the desert to return to his parents in Texas. Tex wasn't the only one to disappear. Family members Barbara Hoyt and Simi Valley Sherry were frightened by the violence they heard about. One night, they slipped away and walked 16 hours through the desert until they were able to stop a car and hitchhike back to Los Angeles. Besides the blow of losing members, Charles also had to contend with the attention of park rangers who correctly suspected the group had set fire to equipment belonging to the park's department. These suspicions led park rangers and the California Highway Patrol to pay the family a visit. They found stolen cars, including makeshift armored vehicles with scabbards to hold weapons. The officers' suspicions of this strange group deepened. On October 10th, the Park Service, Highway Patrol, and Inyo County Sheriff's Department raided the property. Authorities made over a dozen arrests, but they did not locate Charles. By chance, he had gone back to Los Angeles the day before to try to raise some extra money and replenish their food stash. Charles returned to Death Valley as soon as he heard about the raid. Perhaps he panicked at the thought of his followers in custody and what they might be telling the police. He wanted to be physically close to them while he figured out how to regain control. Immediately after Charles's return, the authorities raided the desert ranch again. This time, as California Highway Patrolman James Purcell made a sweep inside the house, he found a lit candle flickering on the table, and he knew that someone must be home. Purcell searched the bathroom. Right before his eyes, the door of a small cabinet by the sink swung open, and Charles Manson emerged. Purcell said, If you make one false move, I'll blow your head off. To which Charles replied, Hi. Charles was arrested and brought to a jail in Inyo County, along with the rest of the family. Once serious interrogations began, everything started to unravel. 20-year-old Kitty Lutzinger, who was pregnant with Bobby Beausoleil's baby and frustrated that she was being kept in the dark, told the police everything she heard about Gary Henman's murder. She also told them she had heard Susan Atkins bragging about stabbing a man in the legs. She assumed Susan was talking about Henman, 
but he hadn't been stabbed in the legs. The attack she described fit another crime better, the murder of Wojtek Frykowski at Sharon Tate's house. Investigators questioned Susan, who corroborated the story, admitting that she had been present for Henman's murder. Susan was subsequently booked for murder and moved to a women's prison in Los Angeles County. Susan spent the next few weeks bragging to other inmates that she had been part of the Tate murders. John R. Schaefer, a behavioral analyst for the FBI, says this behavior is common, stating, when criminals commit crimes, they feel an overwhelming need to tell someone what they did, especially if the crime required skill and cunning. Criminals crave recognition for their nefarious deeds. Susan's fellow inmates reported her statements to authorities. While investigators were linking the family to the Tate and Hinman murders, they also discovered evidence of Charles's involvement in the LaBianca murders. The leather material of Charles's deerskin suit matched the leather ropes used to tie the hands of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. In the previous months, police had conducted three separate murder investigations without seeing a link between them. Now, with the Manson family in custody, the connections between the Tate, LaBianca, and Henman murders were staring them in the face. Now that police had found the perpetrators of the murders, prosecutor Vincent Boliosi began to build his case against Charles. He would have to rely on witness testimony, and for this, he would need to convince some of the family members to let go of their devotion to and fear of their leader. Breaking Charles's hold over the family was a difficult process. Psychologist and cult expert Margaret Singer stated that the idea of leaving a cult is often unbearable for participants. She says, there is a psychological bond that becomes most difficult to sever. Perhaps Charles's most bonded and devout follower was Susan Atkins, who had been present for all the bloody crimes. Susan Atkins eyed the prosecutor sitting across from her. He was trying to question her, but it was hard to focus on him. She had to stay alert in case Charlie tried to send a message to her. The lawyers kept telling her that Charlie was far away in jail in Inyo County. But Susan knew that Charlie was everywhere. He was watching her now. He would know if Susan betrayed him. Her lawyer told her that the prosecutors wanted her to testify against Charlie. He told her that if she didn't cooperate, prosecutors would push for the death penalty. But Susan understood what her lawyers did not. Death was meaningless. Only the spirit mattered and the spirit lived forever. That's what Charlie had taught her. Susan Atkins' belief in Charles was unwavering, but she seemed to enjoy talking about the murders. Lawyers convinced her to testify in front of a grand jury in Los Angeles. Susan explained how Charles had programmed the family to do things and gave detailed descriptions of their crimes. Susan didn't seem to realize that she was incriminating Charles. She saw her testimony as an opportunity to proselytize about Charles's godlike powers. The grand jury panel issued indictments on seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder against Charles Manson, 
Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. Leslie Van Houten was indicted on two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. The trial began in the summer of 1970. Although she had testified in front of the grand jury, Susan Atkins refused to testify for the prosecution at trial. Now she claimed that Charles was innocent and that the family had acted alone without his help or influence. But prosecutors had other witnesses to counter this. They arranged a deal with Linda Kasabian, who had accompanied the family on the murder missions but refused to kill anyone. Linda was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony. The prosecutors also secured the testimony of former family member Barbara Hoyt, who had walked 16 hours through the desert to escape them. Testifying against the family proved to be risky. Prior to the trial, a family member approached Barbara, pretending to renew their friendship, but then proceeded to poison Barbara with 10 tabs of LSD. When Barbara recovered from the overdose, she was more determined than ever to testify. Although prosecutors managed to turn some family members into cooperative witnesses, most of them remained under Charles's spell. Famed social psychologist Leon Festinger studied similar behavior in a 1950s UFO cult. Festinger noted that when the cult leader's doomsday prophecy failed, the cult members became more committed rather than less. Festinger attributed this to cognitive dissonance, writing that a person can distort her perception and the information about the world around her in order to protect her convictions. During the Manson trial, several of the family women gathered outside the courthouse every day, singing and chanting for crowds of onlookers. Inside the courtroom, Charles tried to disrupt the trial with a variety of antics, including carving a small X in his forehead just above his eyebrows. He arranged for a family member to pass out a written statement outside the courthouse. It read, I have X'd myself from your world. No man or lawyer is speaking for me. I speak for myself. I am not allowed to speak with words, so I have spoken with the mark I will be wearing on my forehead. After he did this, the family woman appeared at the courthouse with X's gouged into their foreheads. But the trial moved forward as scheduled. On March 29, 1971, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Pat Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were sentenced to die in the gas chamber. Tex Watson had a separate trial was convicted in October of 1971 and also sentenced to death. But before these sentences were carried out, California's Supreme Court voted to abolish the death penalty in 1972. Charles remained infamous in prison, attracting notoriety, in part due to the devotion of his followers. In 1975, family member Lynette Squeaky Fromey attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Secret Service tackled her before she could shoot. Charles might not have ordered the hit himself, but many speculate that Lynette did it to impress him. She was sentenced to life in prison for the assassination attempt and paroled in 2009. In a recent 2019 interview, 
she confessed that she was still in love with Manson. Other followers did not remain faithful. Susan Atkins eventually renounced Charles and converted to Christianity. She died of cancer in 2008 after nearly three decades in prison. Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten have also expressed their repudiation of Charles. They remain in prison today and have so far been denied parole. Charles Manson died in prison in 2017 at the age of 83. But 50 years after the Manson family's crimes, people remain fascinated by the cult's legacy. The Manson family came together at the height of a counterculture movement that encouraged young people to reject convention, question authority, and embrace the ideals of peace and love. Charles Manson's brutal crimes effectively destroyed the spirit of the 60s as the world came to associate the hippie lifestyle with a wave of crime and violence. But if Charles's life shows anything, it's that he did not need a hippie ideology or political agenda to inspire him to violence. His malicious behavior began long before the 1960s. Charles's cousin, Joanne, told the following story. Six years old, first grade. He talked the girls in his class into beating up other boys he doesn't like. Then when the principal comes to ask Charlie, why did you do that? Charlie's response is, it wasn't me. They were doing what they wanted. You can't blame me for that. 30 years later, he'd use the same defense with a new group of girls. Thanks again for tuning in to our Crimes of Passion Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Crimes of Passion next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new Podcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and Twitter at Podcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.